freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. I'm Bill Ayers, and Light Eileen, Jordan Allen, and I are gathered here in the spirit of our recently deceased colleague and comrade, Malik Alim, for our seminar on freedom. Tom Morello, as always, got us started with Let Freedom Ring. We appreciate Tommy as he opens each episode, inviting us to reignite the crackling fuse of possibility. If you don't already know him, you ought to know Tom Morello, his music, and his message. Tom's a wizard with a guitar, as well as a political activist who deploys his art and his energy on behalf of freedom fighters everywhere. I'll be seeing Tom in May at John Brown's farm in upstate New York. It's the 100th anniversary of John Brown Day, when black citizens of Philadelphia made their pilgrimage to lay a wreath on John Brown's grave at a celebration of his birthday, and where Tom will be honored this spring by one of my favorite organizations called John Brown Lives, with the Spirit of John Brown Freedom Award. I'll report back on that. Today we're broadcasting from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum wrapped in contradiction, both a crime scene and a confirmation. These lands were stewarded for millennia by indigenous peoples and nations and lineages, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. They raised their children here, created their communities, made sense and meaning for one another, experienced the flowing and the passing of their time together, planned for the future, and buried their dead here. Chicago's name, derived from the Algonquian language, means river whose shores are lined with wild leaks. And it's true, Chicago is a confluence of water, wildness, peoples, hopes, and aspirations, a place of outsized and crazy complexity, built up by the hands of immigrant workers and African ancestored people, escaping terror and the afterlife of slavery during the Great Migration. Justice seekers, freedom fighters, teachers and cultural workers, artists and creators, organizers and activists. All of us must remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide and exploitation. And we must also pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Note that this unceded land has the third largest urban native population in the U.S. today with more than 65,000 Native Americans in the greater metropolitan area. We're transmitting as always on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we tune in and look uneasily at the world we've inherited and search for spaces of enlightenment and liberation places where we can develop our freedom dreams and organize our revolutions. We begin each episode with a quiet contemplation of a poem, and today's selection is Marge Piercy's classic 1982 poem, To Be of Use. The people I love the best jump into work head first, without dallying in the shadows, and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black sleek heads of seals bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves, an ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. 
I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire must be put out. The work of the world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies, clean and evident. Greek amphoras for wine or oil, Hopi vases that held corn are put in museums, but you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. Our second regular feature is a free write impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. So pause the podcast here for just a few minutes and write without stopping, no need for edits or revisions, with today's prompt. What knowledge and experiences are of most value to you now? What is your learning agenda in this period? Okay, start writing. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. We're joined today by Beth Ritchie and Erica Miners, two powerful thinkers and intrepid organizers, each a lifelong freedom fighter. Erica Miners is also a professor of education in women's gender and sexuality studies at Northeastern Illinois University. And Beth Ritchie is head of the Department of Criminology, Law and Justice, and professor of black studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. They've worked together on a range of projects locally here in Chicago and nationally and internationally, most recently co-authoring a book with Gina Dent and Angela Davis called Abolition Feminism Now. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be here. Really excited to be here today. I think I'd like to start with your collaboration. I mean, you've been at this for a long, long time, individually and together. I don't think of this book as a culmination so much as a continuation. Can you talk a bit about the themes and the struggles that brought you together and bonded you, not just on this book, but on so many other projects? Thanks. That's a great way to start because one of the most important themes of this book is the collaboration. Indeed, um, Erica, Gina, Angela, and I have worked together um, you know, for years uh, on separate projects related to um, critical resistance, um, to PNAP, Prison Neighborhood Arts Project, um, teaching at Stateville Prison, organizing around the country on questions of abolition feminism. And the book came really when we realized that the work we were doing, um, the discussions we were having, our instinct to bring abolition and feminism together were always like the secondary conversation, the conversation after the panel or on our ride back from Stateville Prison after teaching. And we wanted to center that work. And we wanted to center it in a way that 
respected our relationships with each other, um, the work that we had done together, and the community of people who were also doing abolition feminism work. So the book is about abolition feminism, and the process was very much about our political and indeed our personal relationships with each other. Go back further. I mean, go back to critical resistance and insight, because these things go way back. They have a deep history, and you're both entangled from the start. I was also just remembering, um, Beth, uh, at when we were at I when I was at IRRPP for a year, and that what is IRRPP? Uh, the Institute. Oh, I was going to say International <laughs> <laughs> Institute for Research on Race and Public Policy at UIC, which Beth was the director of for many years. And um, I think one of the hallmarks of your directorship there was pulling community organizers together and using that space, leveraging the resources of the university to build skill shares on transformative justice. But I'm remembering... Um, thinking about community and collaboration that forced out convening. Yes. Uh, it's got to be yeah. 10 years ago. It yeah. was around immigration and criminalization. It was when a new private prison um, by the Correction Corporation of America was going to be built on the south side of um, Chicago. And this convening was an opportunity to kind of share strategies, sort of build relationships between the immigrant justice work and the um, work against the prison industrial complex and it was in you know, a slow work and it's not like that convening fixed anything but I have this memory of you with like and Dina <laughs> with like uh, vests on mm-hmm. um, and sorry I'm trying to look um, I don't know which way I'm supposed to look um, but uh, with vests on and walkie talkies yes. and just trying to you know, you know making making that space an organizing space um, and there were so many community groups there so much um I don't know, strategizing workout group, uh, well, not workout groups, breakout groups, people were planning. But I think that that, um, I mean, in one sense, sort of represents the years that I've mm-hmm. known you and the kind of, um, you know, the kind of spaces that you have pulled together, that we have pulled together, but also with so many other people. I think about the work of, you know, Anne Russo and the Building Communities Ending Violence. There's so many, I mean, Chicago is such a, um, if I think about Chicago, I think about networks of people you know, kind of coming together to, you know, push towards political education mm-hmm. to end the prison industrial complex and end gender and sexual violence. So right. I think that the book, the collaboration of the book is really representative of a mode of working or a methodology mm-hmm. that I think that you and the work of Insight and the work of CR really framed. Mm-hmm. I, I want to get to this sure. question of small work in Chicago in particular because that sure. was something that fascinated me in the book. But go back and fill in a couple of blanks. Okay. What is critical resistance? Where does it come from? And what is insight? And where does it come from? Sure. Um, critical resistance was a group that formed out of um, a convening that happened over 20 years ago um, in the Bay Area. And a group of people came together to um, initially, you know, share strategizing and resourcing and uh, resources and analytics and thinking around how to build stronger and safer communities that didn't involve more prisons and bigger police and bigger borders. And that convening, um, you know, was built on decades of previous organizing, previous thinking. And that um, convening called Critical Resistance led to the formation of a group um, called Critical Resistance, which has um, operated pretty consistently, I think, since that convening, um, which does everything from produce political education to support campaigns to, um, you know, all kinds of stuff um, around 
building a world that we need now, a world without policing, a world without prisons, and uh, a world free of borders. And two years after that convening, um, many of us who were there who identified very strongly as anti-violence and anti-gender-based violence activists, um, all women, queer, gender non-conforming people, came together and said we had to more aggressively respond to the ways that the mainstream anti-gender-based violence um, that was calling itself a feminist movement was in fact feeding the buildup of the prison nation, feeding the prison industrial mm -hmm. complex, contributing to uh, the punishment industry's growth, um, and critical resistance two years earlier than that had this conference. And we were responding both to the excitement and enthusiasm around critical resistance and also reflecting on the work our own movement was doing. And from there, we had a convening. It's funny how these things happen from <laughs> convenings, isn't it? We had a convening. Um, we thought we'd invite 30 or 40 people, and then we had... 200 people, and the next thing we knew, there were a 1,000 people coming together in California to say we had to embrace some of the ideas of critical resistance around um, divestment from carceral solutions to gender-based violence, and instead we had to build a movement that held people accountable, responded to harm, but wasn't part of the carceral state. And that meant we had to look at individual harm, battering, rape, harassment, um, and we had to look at state violence, and we had to look at how the feminist movement was um, complicit in building exactly the kind of world that critical resistance was trying to respond to. And so it was, in some ways, you know, the story of critical resistance and insight that figures so prominently in the book is an important one because it talks about two movements that could have stood apart coming together for a common agenda around freedom and making sure that we were doing work that was consistent with different analytics, different politics, different forces of oppression um, towards something, a different kind of world. You know, one of the things that that I kept thinking as I was hearing you just now, but also reading the book. I was remembering the first, I know language is very important to you. In fact, I'm struck by the fact that you're chair of a department that used to be called mm -hmm. the Department of Criminology. And now what is it called? Now it's Criminology, Law, and Justice. Bill, it used to be called Criminal Justice. Now That's it's right. Criminology, Law, and Justice. Criminal <laughs> exactly. Justice is no longer part of yeah. our title. First of all, it's an There's oxymoron. No such thing. There's no but, such thing. Yeah, but, but I, I know language is important, and I think that's an interesting change that signals so that's much. Right. But I think, you know, for me, I'm always marking where I first heard a word or where I first tried to understand. Most recently, I've always done a land acknowledgement in this podcast and in my classes, and I talk about mm. the Three Fire Confederacy. Yes. But I've dropped that. Yeah. Do you know why I dropped it? I didn't know. But somebody pointed out to me that that was actually a title imposed by the uh -huh. colonial mm. powers. It wasn't their name for themselves. Right. So now, you know, we dropped that. But the first time I heard the word carceral was from Erica Miners. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. I, I, heard you say, I heard you say it 10 times before I mustered 
the parents say, what is that? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, and I looked it up. I can't find it. So, mm-hmm. it must be making its way into the dictionary. But let's talk about the word carceral. Well, I'm, I'm going to make something up then, Bill. Uh, <laughs> punitive, punishing, you know, how do we respond to... Just, uh, you know, how do we respond to people? Do we re- respond to them with care? Do we respond to them with support? Or do we respond to them with punitive punishing measures? So carceral, you know, I see as a term that, you know, is often used to describe systems or state responses, but it can also be used to describe interpersonal sets of relationships. How do we respond to a problem or, a, you know, or some sort of attention or, you know, harm that has happened? Do we respond with punishment? Do we respond with, um, you know, uh and I think it's uh, with violence, you know, um, it's sort of like that, you know, how, I mean, I'm com- keep coming back to that frame, sort of an eye for an eye or, a, mm. you know, that, that mm-hmm. kind of logic. But, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so it, it covers not just prisons and policing. Sure. It covers schools That's and right. welfare. That's and social right. services. That's yeah. right. That's right. Well, and part of what we try to do in the book Mm-hmm. Um, which we learned from many, many other people who have taught both of us about carcerality and yeah. its relationship to violence, is that even if we were to find a way to abolish or close or mm-hmm. decarcerate people who are actually in the cages right now, we still would have schools, a child welfare system, Mm -hmm. um, treatment programs, secured facilities for people with disabilities. We'd still have the borders. We still would have the ideology and the policy that says the answer to problems is to punish people, somehow find out who's individually who's responsible and punish them. Now, of course, we don't do that with all people, right? Right. We do that within people who are uh, most disadvantaged. And so, carcerality also reflects this notion that the way to respond to pain and um, despair is to find an individual person who can be held um, not accountable to the person who was harmed, but accountable to some other measure of, um, of punishment and just go after them. And we do that in not just in prisons or in jails or in detention facilities. That's how we sort of organize our interaction in many, many institutions. And as Erica said, in interpersonal relationships, which is why the notion of critical resistance and insight coming together, the broad structural change, as well as the individual harm in everyday life is so important to abolition feminism. I think yeah. we, go ahead. Go ahead, no, go ahead. I, say, I think that they've, we've also just naturalized carcerality as the response or that right. that's, it's in the, in the air we breathe in the water system, that that is how we're going to respond to harm or despair. And it's almost unimaginable, I think for some folks to, uh, to sort of think about a different way of responding to this crisis or this act of harm um, outside of that logic. So I think part of the intervention of groups like Critical Resistance and groups like in- Insight is to sort of push the imaginative horizon about, about other ways of other ways of conceptualizing why this harm has happened in the first place and then other ways of intervening. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is an incredible gift in this moment mm-hmm. that those organizations build on he- strong histories and strong movements that have done that before CR and insight were even possible, but um, I think that 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 imaginative intervention is, has been key to the work. You know, you use the phrase expanding the imaginative horizons, and of the many many things I've learned from the two of you, it's that you're always looking not just how do we win this reform and reduce this harm, 
but what's the next iteration going to be of the club or the boot or whatever? How are we going to look beyond? So I remember, Erica, you gave a talk at a meeting. It wasn't really a talk. It was just an intervention in a meeting in which you said, okay, everyone's an abolitionist now. Now what? <laughs> and, and, and what's the next turn? Speak about that a little bit, about always looking both to, to, to what we could be doing, but also what they're going to be doing. Yeah, I feel that, that that is sort of built into the method of abolition feminism, is that this sense of the work is ongoing, it's a way of organizing ourselves, it's a way of living, it's a way of relating, and it's a, it's an, it's a practice. And part of that practice is anticipating how the state, how and why the state is always, or the state or other entities are um, intervening and and organizing themselves. So um, that might be my um, my quick mm. response mm. <laughs> to your to your um, great question. And I and I think yeah, I'll start with that. Yeah, and I think um, you know one of the things that I actually have learned from you, Erica, is the sense that so the the carcerality, the control, the punishment, the blaming of individuals is something that's going to move around. And like, we think we've got it. Mm -hmm. And the next thing we know, it turns up somewhere else. And so our job is to know that, right? And, yeah. and it's both to kind of chase after it, but also to get in front of it. Like, how do we explain and work in a way that sees the problem as broad-based, not only one individual or one institution, but it's broad-based. And so that's the call for social change. That's beyond closing a prison. That's around ending yeah. the ideology and the economic and political, social uh, imperative that has people building institutions of carcerality. And we have to stay in front of it. But the other part of your statement, Bill, that I think is important is that everybody's an abolitionist now, right? And, um, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot. And on the one hand, um, I think it's great that everyone's an abolitionist. You know, like I love, we want everyone, everyone is it and they do it and they use the word. um, And, you know, in abolition feminism now, we try to sort of trace a long genealogy. We try to give a lot of space for people who have done abolition work for a long time. Um, we hope people will know that if they are one now, there were people before that were abolitionists and there were movements of abolition. Um, and so that's the good news part of it. And then it's also, I think, important that we just pause for a moment and say, what does that mean? What does that require if you're an abolitionist? What, what, is, what kind of work is that? But also, what kind of relationships are we mm. building? What kind of long-term commitments are we making? And, you know, I think about just because we may feel like we're kind of losing some of the battles around defund the police, for example. And so people say, I'm an abolitionist, but we lost the abolition fight. Like, that's the only or biggest abolition fight. It just isn't. It's a big one. It's an important one. But the abolitionist in everyone now is about taking the long view trying over and over again, understanding that when we lose a campaign, we still can win a movement. And um, we have to be constantly vigilant about where carcerality is showing up and where abolition feminism can move to try to counter it. Um, so we're, 
everyone should be an abolitionist. Everyone should be an abolition feminist, not just an abolitionist. Mm -hmm. Let's say that. And we need to be just ready for the long fight. Because that's what it is, it's a long okay, fight. Okay, say more about yeah. an abolitionist feminist, not just an abolitionist. How, how You bring these movements, these ideas together so brilliantly. Say a bit more about that. Dilate that point a bit. I mean, I was just thinking while Beth was talking about the... I'm going to go back to the other question for a second, Bill. Um, but the importance of the intervention... Like, we started the book before the uprising mm -hmm. connected to George Floyd, and I think one of the interventions that seemed really helpful as the book was progressing was that more people were identifying as ab abolitionists. So it seems like, you know, one of the many interventions of the book that, that I think is that it provides some, you know, point of reference, some study, some some tools for people who are excited about using that term to be able to use it, not that we have the right answers or not that just because people have done the work before, it's the right way to do it, but it provides some scaffolding, some framework, some critical questions, some modes of inquiry, some, some, you know, some tools for people to engage. So I think that that became even more important you know, as we were working on the project from when we started. Um, so abolition feminism, I mean, I think for all of us, if I can speak for all of us in this moment, mm -hmm. that doing the work, um, doing the project was just a reminder that we can't have abolition without feminism and we can't have feminism without abolition, right? We can't have a world without prisons and without police without the same kind of commitment to ending gender and sexual violence. And we can't have movements to end gender and sexual violence, for example, right? Um, that aren't, that are, um, that are building up uh, prisons and policing. So, you know, for us, those two, those two interrelated movements are inseparable and they, um, you know, you can't be an abolitionist without that feminist lens and you can't be a feminist without that kind of abolitionist commitment. That's really helpful. You know, I also love that, that you're willing to say <clears throat> we won, but we're not leaving town. You know, in other <laughs> right. words, I mean, I right. mean, sometimes I think the left gets too crabby and saying, you know, <laughs> but I own this issue yeah. and it's a, it's a small issue that only the enlightened can understand. I think your writing and your organizing, both of you, um, points to the fact that the ideas that we that are precious to us are not precious in the kind of hold them close to your chest That's right. way. Mm -hmm. they're, they're ideas mm -hmm. that we can win. And, That's right. and that when we win them, we shouldn't be grouchy about winning over. I mean, in my world of schools, you know, we campaigned for decades against the standardized tests and the racism of the standardized test. And then when one of our enemies comes over to our side, <laughs> a lot of people say, she never believed that. I right. believed it first. Forget about it. Right. You know? Right. I mean, if she's on our team, let's let's embrace it and let's yeah. then move on because that's not the the last word on anything, right? Mm. That's right. And I think that <laughs> is a decidedly uh, contribution of feminism. I agree. Especially yeah anti-racist feminism, especially mm -hmm. feminism led by black women. And I think there is a, um, it, there's a generosity, there's a inclusiveness. I'm not idealizing individual people here. I'm talking about a praxis that says we need more people um, on our side. We need everyone to try something new and different. We need to be able to hold each other accountable for the mistakes we make, the bad judgment that we use. And those aren't people we get rid of. Those are people we bring in yeah. and uh, move forward again and again and again. And I think the 
The feminism, for me, is the one that speaks to the kind of point you were making, Bill, about um, future-oriented, dialectical understandings, uh, care for each other. As we're doing work, we also care for the people that we are. Um, and that's the only way we're going to build this freedom movement or sustain this freedom freedom movement. I just get so excited listening to I can't add anything to that. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I mean, generosity, um, care, mm. um, you know, somehow loving your own life even as you love the world and loving the world even as you love your own yeah. life. I mean, and it gets to something that's bothered me my whole life, which is how can you commit to a righteous cause, believe in its goals, recognize its contradictions, its errors, its stupidity, its mistakes, and still stay committed. Right, and right. And you, you're both models of that for me. I mean, yeah. you're with it, but you're never hiding the terribleness of what yeah, we yeah. are. Yeah. You know, that we, we make mistakes. Yeah. And I, I think there's something, I'd love for you to talk about that a bit, because I think it's easy to either become self-righteous or disillusioned, cynical. Yeah, yeah. And I think that to, to hold to a course that's generous, caring, compassionate, but dedicated mm. is a very hard dialectic to walk. Mm. It, it's such an interesting reflection back, mm. uh, you know, moment to think mm. about that, Bill. Um, you know, I feel like I learned that or... Um, that became sort of part of the fiber of my organizing activism from work with women in prisons. Mm. I mean, there's, you know, the words that we hear about like resilience or, you know, you know, motivation, keeping, it's so much more than that. It's about how you survive the unsurvivable almost, how you make meaning out of a situation that doesn't make any sense at all. How do you find your people in a place that's designed to like keep people away from their own humanity as well right. as everyone else's? And, you know, the years I have learned from and been a witness to that, I feel like has informed my organizing on the outside. You know, I, it takes mm -hmm. me back to maybe 25 years ago mm -hmm. when we first met yeah. and you came to one of my classes, we were colleagues at UIC, and I was teaching a book you wrote called Compelled to Crime, mm -hmm. which remains for me a really, and, and I can feel the threads of that book mm -hmm. in the work today. Mm -hmm. But but tell people how you got, that, that opening story in Compelled to Crime about how you recognize, you were a social worker at yeah. Harlem Hospital, right? I was, I was. And I was working, um, you know, this was when we thought we could prevent adolescent pregnancy by running support groups. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, so every, here we every were. Right, every generation. Every generation. I'm, I'm afraid someone might it. still be doing that. If that's what you're doing and you're listening, <laughs> stop doing that. Um, but we, of course, were, you know, doing more planning of baby showers and really, you know, mutual aid. Help, you know, you've mm. got a stroller. I need a stroller because I'm pregnant. And you've got, you figured out where you're going to get your supplies. So, I quickly realized that I needed to sort of be where people were, which is help them figure out how to be good parents, because that's what was happening, right? And But there was one woman who came over and over again pregnant. And when I say over and over again, like pregnant, miscarrying, pregnant, miscarrying. And I realized, finally, I had to find out what was happening. Of course, I should say, of course, not of course. But I learned from her about the brutal assaults that she was experiencing in her life that were causing pregnancy from her boyfriend, from her 
mother's boyfriend. So there were multiple people who were causing harm, always causing a pregnancy. She stopped coming to that group because, of course, the things we were talking about didn't make any sense. And I bumped into her on the streets. Um, I lived in the community where she lived. And uh, she said, you know, I was like, I just am so sorry that I was doing such an inappropriate intervention. And we then started talking about the condition of her life at that point. She was forced into sex work. And I, and I was had a new understanding about gender-based violence, invited her to the group of, I was running then a support group, another one for survivors of gender-based violence. And she came the first time. This is my first lesson about carceral feminism. So I'm going to make that point too. Our very best New York City white feminist attorney was there talking about you have rights as a crime victim. You, We will defend you in court against this. And she never came back because of course she because she was forced into sex work, had to go to the bodega downstairs and take some bread and salami home, whatever, so that she could act like she was working, not at a support group, right? The next time I saw her was at Rikers Island. Exactly. I saw her at Rikers Island, which is the jail in New York City, the Rose M. Singer Center, the women's jail. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, well, thank you for all your help. And I was like, I am so sorry for all the ways I did not help. And she said, part of what was hard is we were categorically organizing services we still do this we had it for pregnant teenagers or at-risk teenagers then we had it for pregnant teenagers then we had that for survivors of gender-based violence and we so we had all these services and none of them took uh, care with her full life and her full circumstances and this is what I mean when I say we've got to follow and be out in front like somebody just should have sat down somebody like me mm. and said tell me about your life and what can I do mm. what resources can I bring how can I learn to understand what it is that you need not what this service says I'm supposed to do for the hour and a half that we have together right and so again that's where I, I feel like I uh knew I always had to be a student of people who are in the most um, danger and that I had to reflect that in both what I do but also how I do it. And so that's why the connection between the question of how do you sustain yourself, you sustain yourself because other people are who are in much worse situations than I am and because I'm still learning about Mm. how to do this work in the way that dignifies the, the life and creates the kind of freedom, not the mm. service mm. or the group or the money or the support, but the freedom that she needed. Tell me about your life, becoming a student of your students, becoming, unlocking the wisdom in the room. That very much informs mm. your work today. And mm. it very much informs the work of the Prison Neighborhood Arts Project, don't mm-hmm. you think? Yes. Tell me about your life, become... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A student of of the people you work with, mm-hmm. and and, and mm-hmm. Beth used the word you know in service. So you ap- operate much more in solidarity right. than in service, mm-hmm. right next to, not above, and knowing mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff. Say a word about PNAP. PNAP. Um, we've been around for about ten years, and. You know, we got started in part because organizers who had been at TAMS, the Supermax prison that had gotten shut down, had moved to Stateville and were writing some of us in the city of Chicago, you know, wondering, you know, what was happening at Stateville prison. Um, And 
I had some free time that year in part <laughs> because I was at IRRPP, which was previously referenced. And we started to try to build, um, you know, kind of meet with people at Stateville Prison to see what would be useful, what did people want, what were people interested in. And, of course, the demands were, you know, super, you know, everything. Um, and we couldn't do, you know, all of those things. But we committed to keeping on going and um, trying to build out, recruiting other people um, so that we had a big team of people who... Um, would be able to do everything from teaching classes to um, guest lectures at the prison to ferrying information in and out of the prison, getting organizers in. I mean, for us, the academic program was really sort of like the, oh, who's listening to this? Oh, no. <clears throat> it was like the shell or the, you know, the vehicle that we were able to um, to kind of fold in all kinds of stuff so we could bring in people who were from BYP 100 and talk about the work that they were doing. Because people inside, of course, like everybody, want connections to movements and people and organizations to you know, allow themselves to, to flourish and to just, you know, have real connection. Um, and there's expertise inside, there's expertise outside. I mean, no no one entity is, there's not, I mean, it's a fake wall anyway. Mm. So... Um, we started, um, yeah, we, we, we have sort of used the framework of an educational program as the sort of legitimacy in part to kind of stay at the prison tenaciously um, and um, try to try to offer material things that people need, like books, like, like um, degrees, but also people want freedom. People inside, you know, want access to freedom. And so our real purpose is to support people's pathways towards freedom. And that's also their loved ones on the outside. That's their own freedom inside. So that's sort of the um, loose political mm. lens for PNAP. I think we're in t we're at 10 years now, Beth? 10 years, I think, yeah. <clears throat> wow, and you pulled me in. Thank you yes, very much. Yes, I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, all of this is an example of something, again, that I learned from the two of you and I admire so much, and that is the ways in which small projects can be powerful yeah and you've in this book you have a whole genealogy of threads and lines and meetings and campaigns and <laughs> convenings um, that, that seem like small acts organizations come and go but they somehow contribute to a wave of consequential movement making and that's what you know as i was reading your genealogy of chicago which i thought was really helpful to me even though i was there but i i didn't ever have it put together like that. And then you realize that small acts actually can become part of something bigger. And it makes me rethink all kinds of things like the abolition of slavery, the ab abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, or, you know, these things didn't happen in a bolt. Right. They happened for decades and decades. And we lose that sometimes. And, I, and so I so appreciate the way in which you kind of held up and lifted up small work as being part of leading to big work. And I, and I think part of it, and I hear it in what you're saying now, is based on the idea that even though our ideas might be opposed by power, might be marginalized by power, they're still good ideas, and they're still ideas that can convince people if we can become convincing. Right. Right? I mean, right. And I think the, you know, the the big and small, the long and short term, we, we talk about it as the, the both and, that exactly. it's critical, obviously, that we make people 
feel better, that we help resolve harm, that people have the things that they need, you know, to live their lives. And we have to do that with integrity and rigor and care. And we also have to build a world where people, once they have their lives, they can actually live them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the sort of taking the long view, looking at the larger structural um, issues, the macro analysis, we really believe and I think have uh, been, we've benefited from, you know, those times when you're working with 13 other people, <laughs> you know, for two and a half years to try to do whatever, right? And relationships are formed and um, care is built in. We get to know each other. I mean, the relationship part is 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 key to this. And, and we're also part of like, you know, the 300 people or the 3,000 people who are going to demonstrate or boycott or close it down somehow. And that both things are important. And we never want to lose sight. One of the things I think PNAP always reminds me is never lose sight of the people right now, you know, whoever's listening or where any, whenever anyone hears is the people right now who are still unfree. And so always we have to remember that. And we have to remember that, you know, 20 years from now, we want to have less of those people. And so what are we doing about that 20 year project? Mm -hmm. um, and the long and short term, the inside, outside, across the wall, both and is important. And some people say, we can't do everything. And I always uh, respond, because I really believe this, that we don't have to do everything all the time. We have to do something all the time. Can and we, we can, do anything? Exactly. Yeah, right. We have to do something all the time, even mm -hmm. if it's like our 13-person meeting, and then, you know, next week or next year we're doing the 3,000-person thing. So we just have to figure out where we are at any given moment and make sure that um, that we're not losing sight of the long term, but nor in working at the long term, we're letting people who need us suffer, right? Who need us to do something different. And I, I'm just thinking back to your sort of framing of sort of a, the black feminist tradition. And I think that the, um, the praxis, the local work, the commitment to praxis, the commitment to the doing and the trying without resources, with the 13 people, I think that's part of that genealogy mm -hmm. of Black feminism that felt important to include in the project. And, you know, having, uh, which is so often erased, those tiny networks, those small groups, those storefront people that, you know, ran a workshop or did a, you know, mm -hmm. tiny convening or did something. So I, I, I think that that attention to the local and to the specific and to the you know, often historically erased is part of that um, commitment to um, centering Black feminism and the praxis in embedded in Black mm -hmm. feminism. Mm -hmm. You use the phrase both and, mm -hmm. and you use the phrase, phrase uh, building is different than winning. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe say another word about that. Mm -hmm. Both and, I mean, I think that that was sort of a, theme, I was going to say a drumbeat, which is probably not a um, great visual. Um, that has sort of military overtones. Um, um, no, all the military, come on. I mean, it seems, you know, Beth talked about earlier, um, you know, I think the, one of the pieces of um, abolition feminism that 
kind of surfaced throughout the project was this commitment to paying attention to and practicing that both end framework, right? That both we can have a radical vision mm -hmm. that is, you know, seemingly unimaginable for many. And at the same time, we can have a practice attached that's working towards that, that those two are not, you know, impossible or, or not reconcilable. So it, I, I think that the, the both end framework was really important um, you know, as, a, as an anchor for the project and as a way to, to think through um, and also to communicate to people, you know, that this is abolitionist feminist work. You know, this is what, you know, this is, this is possible because I, I think, you know, it's also writing a little bit to an audience that's saying either abolition is you know, impossible and impractical, you know, or that you just have to kind of operate within the now and do, do things that are connected to the moment that are actually reinforcing the status quo. So I think that both end for us was really a central framework of abolition feminism mm -hmm. and that you know the winning part mm -hmm. is um you know the second and i i think i actually would attribute a lot of this to your wisdom your contribution to the <laughs> book erica that um you know we will always be different when we come out of a campaign mm -hmm. whether we win it or lose it mm -hmm. we'll be different and we want the difference to be so that we're better poised for the next time. And, you know, if we have closer relationships, if we learn some lessons, if we have a few more people involved and we lost, I mean, that, you know, is the heartbreak of organizing. Mm -hmm. But it also is the opportunity to say, not a full autopsy of what went wrong, but more, what are we going to do next? Mm -hmm. And to sort of keep moving forward and... You know, some we're gonna we're gonna lose some of our campaigns. It's mm -hmm. part of what happens, but we still can be building for the next one, right? Yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's a learning agenda, partly, and partly the calculus. I, I think about the night I went down to Stateville Prison when they mm. were killing um, mm. John Wayne Gacy, mm. and I went down there to protest with. I, I wasn't in touch with anybody. I just went down yeah. because mm -hmm. Bernadine and I drew straws and. She lost and stayed home and took care of the kids. <laughs> and I went down with my little sign, Thou shalt not kill. I worked my way to the front of the prison. There were 15 protesters surrounded by several thousand young people who were having a beer party. Oh, and I, if I've ever felt marginal that yeah. night, wow. felt very marginal. But I realized, mm. and we talked about it a lot afterwards, that the calculus was not that we were going to win that night. Mm -hmm. The calculus that was... An, oh, partly an existential calculus. I want to be a human being who stands outside the prison and says no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And partly I want to find those other people who are willing to do that. Right. And and the calculus is a learning agenda. Then. Right. Um, but I really so appreciate that in this book because it's a big theme that you don't have to... And, and we're so instantaneously organized. So we think right. if, I, if we have a protest and we didn't win, well, then I think right. we'll win. But that's right. wrong. Right. It's... it's it's a process, and it's a continuing, lifelong commitment. And I think that this book really illustrates that so, so yeah. brilliantly. I think there's a kind of capitalist instinct, mm -hmm. right, about measuring our value, measuring our worth mm -hmm. by whether we win, whether we prevail. Yeah. And again, a feminist praxis would say that's not the calculus that says whether mm -hmm. we're worthy. And I, you know, what Bill, when you said I wanted to stand as a human. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a win. If we can have more people feel the possibility of standing as a human against 
their oppression that is about themselves or about something that is outside of themselves, that's a huge win. Mm-hmm. Even if the prison, mm-hmm. you know, if the execution still happens or the prison gets built or the cops are still in the schools or the violence is still happening, whatever it is, more people feeling engaged with mm-hmm. that project mm-hmm. is a win. Mm-hmm. And it will build, the threads will continue. Yes. And that's mm-hmm. illustrated so brilliantly mm-hmm. in that chapter yeah. in the book called mm-hmm. Now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we walk toward fundamental change always on two legs. And one is organizing, mobilizing, which we do. And one is what you might call real politics. And I think the right has been mm. genius at mm-hmm. walking on two legs in the last while, last period, in the sense that they've organized real politics. They've taken over electoral machinery right. and an entire political party. But they've also mobilized their, um, you know, shock troops and their... Yeah masses mm-hmm. and that's what we have to do and and that's part of how i think about both and yeah mm-hmm. you know, yeah we do mm-hmm. this and that we reduce harm and we point to a vision of a new society mm-hmm. yeah and i think the um you know i've been thinking a lot about as the kind of gender-based anti-violence movement is trying to figure out what to do with questions of abolition like seriously in a way that mm-hmm. i think we hadn't before um i and I thinking back to those support groups, I think what if you know what we used to do political education, not like psychological support. Mm. People need psychological support, absolutely, and we should do that. But we also need to use the group moment for political education, for mobilizing, for getting people on a bus and going to a protest um, for the hour that was dedicated to the you know the psychological support. And I think we don't always like look around and see who our people are. Like Mm -hmm. we sometimes are separate from who our people are. And I think one of the things that PNAP has done so well is engage family members who might otherwise feel, family members who have a loved one who's incarcerated, who might otherwise feel disconnected from the political movement of abolition Mm -hmm. um, because abolition, a political movement of abolition hasn't been where people are living their lives, right? And so to engage with so many people who are impacted as opposed to kind of having it be, uh, I'm not going to call it an elite movement, but a sense of detachment from people's real lives is um, mm-hmm. is a problem. We've, we're, lo- we're not engaging with the people mm-hmm. who could be our people, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the No Cop Academy, I'm just thinking mm-hmm. about your earlier question and um, your resp- earlier response to Beth, that, I mean, that was such a, you know, good reminder of such a powerful intervention that didn't, hasn't as of yet technically won but really did that hard work mm-hmm. of like very local political education, produced a toolkit, cops communities and change that they're revising and doing a new edition. Did the, you know, it was largely young people, people attached to Asada's Daughters and uh, American Friends Service Committee. They had like a little youth network doing like trainings with other organizations. So the other organizations would sign on to the coalition and they got like, I, I think, it's actually 200 i think we're wrong in the book 200 different community-based organizations to sign on to reducing policing so even Mm. though which was Mm -hmm. unimaginable even like two or three years before so and i think that 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 is sort of like a feminist approach political education that's a feminist practice and praxis and also sort of this vision we got this you know we're we're working towards this goal of course we don't want the 95 million dollar police academy but at the same time you know, we know that even if we defeat the $95 million police academy, there might come up with a, 
25 million dollar you know social work policing academy next door to it so so the 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 goal is to really change the hearts and minds and do the do that kind of slow political education work that slow culture change work and i think that that is crucial i mean i i hear you we need to you know we need to get people elected to the 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 the, the what was the they had the walking metaphor or something like that well, you have to walk towards structural yeah. change on two but, legs yeah. but if we don't have if the people aren't with you right yeah. which is yeah, Beth's yeah, point yeah. too then yeah. there's no yeah. so i think we you know we haven't done the we haven't done the political education yeah. work yet and I, I, we see that still so i think mm-hmm. that that's you know, I mean, I think a lot of what your work has done is change the narrative, and the No Cop Academy mm-hmm. was an example of that. Hearts and Minds is one way of saying it, but the narrative in Chicago is quite different than it was yeah. before oh, that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. and the yeah. same with the Burge Torture, yep. yes. thing, yep. which we've yes. talked yep. about on this podcast before. You, you think about, you say unimaginable, that's exactly it. Yeah. That what was unimaginable... 10 years ago becomes mm-hmm. common sense. That's How do right. we continue to, to push the limits of that? Right. But I have to say one other thing on the walking on two legs. <laughs> As you both know, um, our youngest son is the district attorney of San Francisco. Yes, we do. And of course, we gave him money and encouraged him to because it's what he wanted to do. And we said, we can't wait till you're elected so we can denounce you. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, it's funny because he's now... He's now done a couple of things that have blown our minds. You know, you know about the recent thing about the rape kit? Oh, my gosh. I think I do. They indicted a woman for a high-end shoplifting. And how did they get her? Well, they connected her DNA to an, an, an episode in which she was raped. So Chesa blew that up. It's become a national issue. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I think that's, you know, it's not that that's going to change the world. It could reduce some harm. It could, but we have to kind of keep pushing the idea that there's a mm-hmm. vision yeah. of what we could have out there that includes no prosecutors, mm-hmm. right. no police, no right. jails. You know, right. that's mm-hmm. the world we want to build. Right. And I think that's important. And I can't wait until I can sit and talk to Chesa about how profoundly important that was. There have been a very small group of us that for years have been saying the focus on the backlog, testing the backlog of the rape kits is such a waste of time. Now, to anyone listening who has been sexually assaulted, I understand how important it feels to be validated by someone who says it this really happened and the the unfortunately the testing using the rape kit is one of the few ways because we have not had the imagination to do much more mm-hmm. than that it's one of the few ways that in the medical industrial complex people feel seen mm-hmm. and so they feel seen and then there's the backlog of wherever the rape kits disappear from and so some carceral feminists have said we need to go find all those kits and test them and a group of us have said that's not the we need to prevent sexual violence, mm-hmm. right? We need to make sure that people are seen and heard and that harm is restored. We need transformative justice. We don't need testing of rape kits as the answer for freedom and liberation and safety, etc. It doesn't do that. And is this the perfect example mm-hmm. of why that's not the right approach? And again, I say that out with respect and yeah. honor for anyone who survives a sexual assault. Right. And I hope you get seen and validated. Um, that's a different discussion than whether we need to find all those kits and test them because mm. it's going to, 
it's going to turn back on us, right? And whether the state is your friend at the end of the day uh, in those those instances. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to respect your time. I want to ask you one more tiny question, which is um, neither of you stands still for very long. You're both (laughs) constantly moving in this dynamic, swirling, churning universe we live in. Um, You published this book, um, extraordinary book. Everyone should read it. but where are you now? What do you think? How do you name this political moment? What is to be done? Where do we go from here? I said it was a small question. I know, so tiny it's question. a one, one, one yeah, word answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <sighs> keep on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, keep on study. I think the, the project and working on the project was also, I mean, a gift in many ways mm-hmm. because of the fabulousness of the people and all the opportunities to learn mm-hmm. and to think and to reflect. Um, but it was also the reminder for me about what I don't know and the commitment to continue to study and learn and unlearn. And I think that that's central to um, um, to this moment and to continuing to do the work. Um, I think organizing, there's no, there's no, there's nothing that, that um, political education is not the right response for. So creating more opportunities for political education, creating more communities to do that, creating more opportunities to, to organize um, and also to, to think and, and act radically, right? Rather than just, um, you know, falling for whatever's being offered as the mm-hmm. state's language or the state's response. Mm-hmm. So I think, I don't know if those are, those are sort of easy responses to the, to the <laughs> deep and hard question, but collectivize, continue to study, continue to organize, um, and find joy in the work. I mean, what propelled me, you know, and continues to propel me, you know, curiosity and beauty but also just it's joyful like it was really joyful to work on this project mm-hmm. to learn uh, continues to i mean with the work at PNAP is heavy other projects i'm involved in is often hard but it's also joy you know mm-hmm. joyous to connect right to, to you know i I, yeah. I stole the uh, my signature line from <laughs> you because erica always signs her emails joy and justice yeah. so i've, yeah. I've yeah. stolen that yeah. because yeah. i think <laughs> That's a dialectic we should all aspire to. And they have to go together. I mean, mm-hmm. I've often stolen it too. I don't. Mm-hmm. I try to change it when I'm sending her an email because yeah, I, I don't want her to like it. Right. 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 <laughs> but it is. I mean, the, linking those two things are is so important because that gets us sort of above the um, despair. It, mm-hmm. it takes us to a different place than the um, feeling of failure or exhaustion or uh, betrayal, all those things that are a natural part of living in this world that we live in right now, right? And if we can say we are working for justice with joy or joyfully working for justice or one of the, like it does sort of reframe. It's it's the same thing that I hold on to that Miriam Kaba says that hope is a discipline. Mm. And, you know, it is sort of trying to, these aren't rhetorical ideas to me. These are like ways that we're going to sustain a radical movement for change. And I think it, um, I don't know, it sort of opens up something about the work. And this, writing this book during a pandemic, during the racial uprising, during so much else that was going on both in our lives, the four of us, and in the worlds around us, at our institutions and our communities, um, was about joy and justice. It really was an amazing experience. Um, And, you know, Bill, I look to you and I look to Bernadine and I say, this is, you know, having community of people Mm -hmm. who you not only care about and want to talk ideas with, but that are like your heart's in it, you know? And so you, both of you are beautiful models 
for that. And um, it makes me feel hopeful, makes me feel joyful, right? Yes, I would I would also, generosity and joy, the two of you absolutely yeah. are um, just amazing exemplars of that and good reminders. And I think the one thing I just want to add is community, right? Some yeah. form of to the folks that are listening, you know, find find some people, right? If, yeah. Find find a network, find a group, find find your people, right? Yeah. Um, and continue to grow that. Yeah. Well, I want to cry um, <laughs> because I, uh, you know, I I really have learned so much from you over the years and continue right up to this last hour. I mentioned that I taught Beth's book, Compelled to Crime. Um, 25 years ago, <laughs> and mm-hmm. last year I taught Erica's latest co-authored book before this one, um, this one, um, which is called uh, "The Feminist and the Sex Offender." Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I want to those of you who are listening, I want you to get to know Erica Miners and Beth Ritchie. Mm-hmm. I want you to get to know them through their writing, through their speaking, through their um, interventions, and join up because what could be better than to link arms? hand-to-hand, heart-to-heart with these two extraordinary freedom fighters. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's time for reports from the front row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook. And I'm delighted to be in conversation, as always, with Light Eilie. And Light, we were talking earlier We're living in a time of war. It seems like we're always in a time of war. And we were talking about a book that you just read in school that kind of grabbed your attention. What's that book? Um, The book was All Quiet on the Western Front, which is considered to be one of the greatest war novels of all time. And did you find it gripping? Did you you get into it? Um, I did. I thought that it was fascinating, although a lot of of the scenes were um, very densely compacted and written but the scenes that were interesting were incredibly interesting well what were some of your favorite scenes can you think of a couple i think a scene that i really enjoyed reading is when the protagonist paul baumer um and his his comrade uh, kaczynski who i think he calls cat um they steal a goose from a um like a cook house i think and they uh they cook it over a fire together um and it takes a long time to cook a goose i think so they're like kind of taking turns sleeping and he feels this kind of affection for him because he's like i think he describes them as closer than lovers um but he he feels very attached to him because he's like his closest friend and he feels like he's very lucky to be there with him and is, is the scene a reflection of kind of friendship under fire? Is that what, what gripped you? Or is it more than that? Yeah, and I think the fact that he was able to... In the scene where they actually steal the goose, uh, Baumer is forced to shoot a bulldog because it was guarding the geese that were there. And um, he didn't realize that, but the dog was attacking him, so he had to shoot it with his rifle. Um, and I think that... I think the the contrast between the like horror at having to do that and then like cooking food with your friend and like feeling that kind of rush of joy was really interesting to me. And what's another scene? Um, a scene that I thought was really fascinating but not exactly as enjoyable as that other one was um, Baumer stabs a Frenchman 
while he's in a trench because there's a shelling above and the Frenchman dies very slowly over the course of maybe 48 hours and Baumer is stuck there with no food and no water and he has to watch the guy die and he's like making these horrible gurgling noises and Baumer is like losing his mind. He goes through the man's um, wallet and his pockets and stuff and he realizes that he's just a man like he is and he says um, if it, if you had jumped in here again, I would not have stabbed you if you were willing to also be reasonable. Uh, you were just an, abs an abstraction in my mind, and it was that abstraction that I killed. It wasn't you, and I'm sorry. And he, in his wallet, he finds pictures of his wife and letters that he was going to send to him. And he's going a little bit insane, and he, he's like, oh my god, this guy was like a painter. Like, he had a job. I have to be a painter too. I have to live this guy's life for him because I ended it so shortly and so unfairly. And he's thinking, and he's like, I need to send his wife these letters. Like she deserves to get these letters. He mm. deserves to have them sent to her. You know, it's funny that that scene, that particular scene, is the only scene I remember. And I read the book fifty years ago. Um, but there's something so gripping about being stuck in a trench, and it's either he kills you. Or you kill him and then the recognition that we're the same we're a couple of working guys one from germany one from france is that true is one french and one german i think yeah so. Balmer yeah. is a german soldier and the other man is french yeah and it's the recognition that we're a couple of working guys and why are we here on this uh field why are we here in this battlefield killing each other when we ought to be we're just the same it's a very very powerful humanizing moment in in kind of anthem war literature yeah i i mean i thought the book was amazing it was one of my favorite books i've ever read for school i have really enjoyed um the odyssey fahrenheit 451 and gilgamesh and then this one is kind of up there on my list but a issue that i had with it um that is probably pretty obvious and is true of most of these old classics that we read for school is the way they talk about women uh, say um, more. It's it's problematic. Um, they are often talking about what they what they want to do when they get peacetime, mm -hmm. and one of them says, "Well, there will be women, right?" And they're like, "Oh, for sure." And he's like, "Then I'd grab me a I don't remember exactly what he says, but he says like, then I'll get a nice buxom dame." Uh, some real kitchen wench with a lot to get a hold of. Damn! And I sent a picture of it to my friend who wasn't reading the book at the time, and she was like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> it was just the worst dialogue. Um, but they're also, I don't, they're, they're collecting driving bands, which are these little things that are around bullets, mm -hmm. so they get shot to the ground. Mm -hmm. And Baumer describes them as, no one knows why they're so desirable, but they all like, like collecting them, because they're like very pretty and kind of cool. And they're big, they're like very wide rings. And the same one who said the thing about the kitchen wench um, says, that, says that he's collecting them so that his girl can supplement her garters. Holy cow. And they all start laughing because if she was to do that, she must have enormous thighs. <laughs> so, so they're all like, by Jove though, he's a wit. I don't know, they say these like crazy things. Right. And he's like very flattered that his girlfriend should receive so much appreciation wow but 
That, that's really telling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But the one other thing that, that strikes me is you're reading this this really deep anti-war novel and the, the anti-war sentiment is that we're all human beings, but you're reading it at a time when war is in the headlines. War is everywhere, right? Because of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict and it's just bombarding the airwaves, right? Do you think about that when you were reading the book? I thought about it all the time. I mean, obviously an underlying theme is that he realizes that the people on the opposing teams are also, like, collecting driving bands from the battlefields and, like, playing scat and stealing birds from the things and, like, cooking them with their friends. They're also, like, little boys. And um, I saw a video online um, on TikTok more specifically Oh, is a uh, Ukrainian soldier um, dancing in the battlefield to uh, Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal. Wow. And I checked to see if it was legit. Like, I was like, it's probably a green screen. He's just doing performance art. But no, he was an actual soldier actually in the battlefield making that TikTok. And I was like, oh my God, he's a kid. Like, he's just a kid making a dancing video, like, while he could die. I mean, it was really a crazy thing to see. It's a striking, striking contradiction. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo, to my co-conspirator Light Eileen, and to Jordan Allen for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an engine of desire. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. The theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts.